It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au or directly from the radio station 3cr.org.au and, of course, whatever your favourite podcasting app is. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter with the tag at bzetechshow. My name's Michael Steindl. I'm joined with, joined with my co-host Kay Wenigal. How are you, Kay? Good, thanks, Mike. How are you? Good. Good, thank you. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Professor Andrew Blakers, uh, Professor of Engineering at the Australian National University. Andrew is the Public Policy Fellow at ANU in recognition of his extensive outreach activities. He's published more than 400 papers and patents and has won numerous national and international awards and contributes to multiple review and granting panels. Leadership roles have included Foundation Director of the Centre of Sustainable Energy Systems at ANU, no director of the Arena Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics, I'm sorry, director of the ARC Centre for Solar Energy Systems, and no director of the Australian CRC for Renewable Energy. Andrew was lead inventor of the PERC, which we'll get to, Silicon Solar Cell Technology, with current sales of $9 billion per year, and co-inventor of the Sliver Solar Technology, the subject of a $240 million commercialisation effort by Transform Solar, and bringing in millions of royalties to the ANU. Andrew has extensive project management experience and has procured more than $100 million in externally sourced research-related funding. Um, Andrew was on this show a couple of years ago, some years ago, with uh, Matthew Wright, the founder of BZE, and he was discussing the sliver cell development then, and we're, we're very excited to have him back. Welcome, Andrew, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi, Andrew. Hello. So, Andrew, um, we had a forum here in Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago, 600 people attending a climate change forum pre-election, and amongst others, um, Janet Rice was speaking, and she talked about that oh-shit moment that um, many of us have in climate change. Um, Did you have an oh-shit moment when you just woke up and realised, this is so big, I've got to do nothing else but that? Or was it a more gradual thing for you? How did you come to be in this area? I was going to be an astronomer when I was at school, so I did physics and maths. Um, but then I took up bushwalking, and it's not possible to do bushwalking without realising that there's uh, lovely places to go walking, and many of them are under threat. It was completely obvious to me and to any other physicist, of course, in the um, in the 70s that climate change was going to be a problem because the physics is so very straightforward. If you add more carbon dioxide and water vapour to the atmosphere then you trap more infrared light while still allowing the uh, visible light to reach the Earth, which means the temperature goes up. So I've been well and truly aware of the, um, the climate change issue. Uh, what I couldn't calculate at that time was how fast or slow it would happen, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, solar power seemed to be the obvious thing to do then to address it um, with physics and maths. So that's what I did. I did a PhD in solar power and uh, then some postdocs, and then uh, I've spent my career working on solar power with a specific view to ameliorating, mitigating climate change. 
And Andrew, to that end, your postgraduate work was at um, the University of New South Wales, I think, and you were there with them with them there for ten years before you went to ANU and started up the Sustainable Energy Systems Centre. Is that right? That's In right, about yeah. nineteen ninety seven. I spent ten years at ANU, then two years at um, at Stuttgart in Germany before returning to uh, ANU and uh, starting the solar power research in photovoltaics there in 1991. Oh, okay, yeah. And that's a pretty big um, centre there now, isn't it? It's about 60 or 80 people working in photovoltaics and solar thermal energy Mm. uh, and broadening to include policy and storage and integration of large amounts of photovoltaics and wind into the energy system. Wow. So that's students and staff, a combination of students and staff, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And congratulations on being the state finalist for the Australian of the Year nominations in 2012. Oh, thank you. That's a very impressive effort and good recognition of your work. Thank you. So also congratulations on, on, on the sliver cell invention, Andrew. Can you tell us the difference or tell our listeners the difference between the silver cell and the standard solar cell technology and the potential applications? The um, standard solar cell is made using a disc of silicon, which is about 0.2 millimetre, 0.2 millimetres thick. Uh, that's about four times thicker than a human hair and maybe 150 millimetres in diameter or square. Um, and each wafer produces one solar cell with a power of a few watts, and then dozens of these are encapsulated to produce a module with a power of maybe 300 watts, mm-hmm. and uh, dozens or thousands or millions of modules are deployed to make a solar farm or a small rooftop system. In contrast, the sliver solar cell takes a thick wafer, which is about one and a half millimetres thick, and um, slices it up vertically into a large number of narrow strips about one and a half millimetres wide and uh, six or eight centimetres long. And each of these becomes a solar cell. It's um, kind of like cutting a loaf of bread vertically. You can get a much larger area of silicon if you cut a loaf of bread, of silicon bread, if you like, vertically than if you simply put that silicon loaf out under the sun to make solar energy. So in that example, the the loaf is your your wafer, your thicker wafer, and then you're slicing that. Okay. That's correct, yeah. And if um, clearly if you can thin slice the loaf, you get twice as much uh, surface area of silicon. And um, one of the advantages of going very thin, and the thickness is you know, typically 30, 35 microns, uh, which is thinner than a human hair, mm-hmm. is that the silicon becomes very flexible. You can wrap these um, long and narrow cells around your finger. So you have very lightweight, high-power, single-crystal silicon modules and um, they can be used in two very important niche applications, one large and one small. One large application is uh, commercial building rooftops often are not designed uh, to take the weight of a glass panel. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're just not strong enough to do that. But if you lay the uh, sliver cells embedded in plastic on the roof, then they can support that weight. So you can access the quite large market for commercial building rooftops. The second um, market is quite a bit smaller, and that's for um, mobile power in remote applications uh, in that you can um, 
choose the bendable foldable panel which has high power and um, very low weight so this is for bushwalking um, military applications. Okay. Is that flexibility in both directions or only um, along the length of the, the cuts? Uh, it's only a one and a half millimetre wide so it's um, but it's 60 or 80 millimetres long. Yes. And you can... Uh, so do you have the flexibility the, on the 60 or 80 millimetre dimension as well or any... Around the, along the 60 to 80 millimetre yep. length. Yep. So those it's two like applications... short straw. You could wrap a straw around your finger, for example. Mm-hmm. Only one way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that... Um, are those two applications that you spoke of the main areas where it's used commercially now? Um, it, it's not currently in commercial use. It was um, the subject of quite a large um, commercialisation effort, uh, which... That, you spoke about that with the, our... Um, Matthew Wright, some years ago, didn't you? And it was yes, on the verge then with Origin and um, Transform, Transform Solar, was it? Mm. Yeah, uh, that correct. didn't go ahead then? Um, they spent about $240 million and then along came the global financial crisis oh, no. and they had to choose whether to spend $500 more million to go to full-scale production or uh, suspend production and they chose to suspend, which was no surprise at all. Um, there is now renewed interest, um, but not for commodity markets, rather for the niche markets that I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So it was gazumped by the, the GFC. That's right. Mm. Not by the federal government. So uh, No, it was much bigger than the federal government. <laughs> You've also been the inventor or heavily involved in the invention of another technology called PERC, P-E-R-C, which I understand stands for the Passivated Emitter and Rear Cell um, solar cells. Can you That's tell right. us about that? Uh, yes, this this was um, a, an invention that occurred in the uh, late 1980s um, while I was at UNSW. I was the uh, lead developer for the high efficiency cells there and the PERC cell was developed in um, 1988 and announced in 1989. Um, this cell then was gradually refined and uh, over the years industrialised. But just recently, in the last five years, we've reached a tipping point where the long, long, long time standard technology of screen printing with aluminium alloyed back surface uh, has reached its use-by date and the whole um, industrial community in photovoltaics has got behind the perk cell and it's likely to move quite quickly to about half of worldwide solar sales um, with um, current sales around the $9 billion mark for this year and uh, heading up into the many tens of billions of dollars by 2020. That sounds fantastic. What what are the limitations with the current cell when you said it reached its use-by date? The efficiency was not sufficient the perk cell costs a bit more to make but has a higher efficiency and we reach the tipping point where the additional efficiency outweighs the additional cost of manufacturing. Okay. And I understand that you're going to get about 25% efficiency with these cells, is that right? Uh, no, not in commercial production. 22% would be um, realistic in commercial production. There's another technology that um, we're also involved with, the integrated interdigitated back contact cell which uh, could reach 25% in commercial production at a premium price. 
Oh, okay. Oh, so for, if you've got a restricted rooftop, for example, then you might want to go for an IBC cell rather than a perk cell. Mm-hmm. Because at China, where the um, government's closing down manufacturers that don't have access to good technology, that and they've done that by imposing cell efficiency standards, and I thought that that might lead to an improvement in the efficiency of the solar cell performance. Yes, um, there's been... Every year the standard module efficiency goes up by about half a percent. So it was 15%, then 15.5% and 16 and now um, many modules from commercial fabs are coming out of the... Um, the cells are coming out at the 20% level. But um, I think over the next five or six years, most fabs will be in the 22 to 25 even 26% uh, efficiency level. And um, I think in the long term, silicon solar cells will top out at about 27% in commercial production. And the latest development in concentrator photovoltaics, CPV, they're about 40% efficient, I understand. But you... Well, the world record efficiency is up around 46%. Uh-huh. Um, and you can buy cells now above 40% for concentrating photovoltaics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be said, though, that concentrating photovoltaics and concentrating solar thermal has made no inroads into the worldwide solar market. The worldwide solar market is about 94% uh, crystalline silicon solar cells and about 3% each of cadmium telluride and SIGS solar cells and mm. um, much less than 1% of everything else put together. Is, what do you put that down to? Um, in many industries... uh, you you get a critical mass occurring in a particular technology that that is pretty good. It might not even be the best, but it's sufficiently good. And then you get thousands and tens of thousands of highly trained scientists, engineers, technicians, financiers, bankers, um, insurance agents, deployers, all all of whom know and love this particular technology and it begets this enormous momentum behind it that's very hard to, to break down. It's yeah. a bit like the internal combustion engine itself, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's, it's enormously diesel, complex. Yes, yeah, that's sorry. right. Mm. Uh, or four wheels versus three wheels, or beta versus VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yep. Yes. It's a and shame. you've got this enormous critical mass. But silicon is a fantastic material as well. It's uh, capable of high efficiency. It's stable. It's Silicon is this number two element in the Earth's crust, so we can never run out of it. Um, it's not toxic. Uh, it's got an awful lot going for it, so it's really a very, very good choice. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and we're talking to Andrew Blakers from the ANU, and we're discussing the latest in solar cell development and efficiencies. Andrew, in um, the previous interview with uh, Matt Wright, you discussed a number of other technologies... Um, including low-temperature solar thermal with a PV hybrid. So that's where you're getting um, household hot water out and you're getting electricity out. And you also discussed um, solar cooling PV hybrids where um, you, you said that you need a higher temperature to do solar cooling. Instead of sort of 60 to 80 degrees, you need something like 120 to 150, if I remember correctly, um, and that will allow you to do cooling. And then Matt asked the question, what about combining the three? And you said, yes, that was happening so that then from the one solar kit, you could get your household hot water, you could get your household cooling, and you could get your household electricity. Has any progress happened on that in the meantime? Uh, yes and no. There's been a really 
a surprising simplification of energy futures. The plummeting price of silicon solar cells is basically wiping everything except wind out of the energy market, not just the clean energy market, out of the energy market. Mm -hmm. So um, the cheapest way to make hot water from your roof now is not a conventional solar hot water system. The cheapest way is to take DC electricity out of your solar panel and put it straight into a resistor inside an off-peak electric water tank. Straight um, resistive so heating, yes. Just straight resistive heating. And if, um, if you um, have a bit more money, you can go and buy a, an air-to-water heat exchanger, which will make your electricity go three to four times further. So a heat so, pump system like, like the, um, uh, the Sandin or uh, the Earthworker Group? Uh, yep, and the, it's equivalent to the reverse cycle air conditioning that many people have, which keeps you cool in summer and warm in winter. This runs off electricity. Um, the electricity moves heat around rather than creates heat directly. So it sucks heat from outside in winter and puts it in the house, where you can do exactly the same with an air-to-water heat exchanger. You suck heat from the outside air and put it into the off-peak off hot water tank where it's stored for a day or two, and there's your hot shower. So um, photovoltaics and wind each constitute about one quarter of new generation capacity installed worldwide, mm -hmm. and fossil, nuclear, hydro, all other renewables constitute the other two quarters. Um, this is an enormous simplification, and it's going to go, I think, to completion over the next five or five to eight years. So photovoltaics and wind will rise to ever larger proportions of new generation capacity, 60, 70, 80, 90% of new generation capacity. And everything else is going to be swept away, I think, because these two technologies have, have got the jump on everything else. They're being deployed at massive scale. They've got massive economies of scale to get prices down, massive incumbency advantages, and uh, they have no constraints effectively because their cost is now fully competitive with new build anything. Mm. So those scale and, and cost and familiarity advantages are actually winning out over perhaps more elegant solutions that are, that are providing those combined outputs. Well, I must say that uh, a photovoltaic system is a very elegant solution. It uh, sits on your roof with no moving parts or sits out in a field with no moving parts. Mm -hmm. And for the next 20 or 30 years, we'll simply pump electricity into your load. It's a wonderful solution. And wind, in it, wind generators are also very elegant. The important thing about photovoltaics and wind is that um, in many places, including most Australian states, they're anti-correlated. That is... Yes. Uh, when it's they complement each other. Yeah. It's, when it's calm, it's often sunny. And when it's um, not sunny, it's often windy. And this uh, reduces the amount of storage that's required to reach 100% renewable electricity systems. Just a quick one on that heat pump for the uh, domestic situation. Um, I can see that providing your hot water for domestic use. What about space heatings? Um, is, is that viable to do with a heat pump too? Well, so uh, heating water lots, for lots your... Um... Got, lots of people have got reverse cycle air conditioning and that does equally well to heat your house in in mm -hmm. winter as to cool your house in summer. Which is, so, yeah, BZE strongly promotes. But the um, hydronic heating systems that people have and want to get rid of their gas, is it viable to do that, heat that sure. water with a, a heat pump? 
Yeah, once again, you need a storage tank yes. because you can't you can't um, provide the heat in fast in, enough uh, real time. So you have a storage tank, and you heat that during the day, and then simply deplete the heat out of the storage tank at night. Is there any difference in the temperature requirements for that storage tank? Uh, not not really. You just need a larger storage tank if the storage tank is feeding both your shower and your hydronic system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. So with this um, uh, transformation in, in the energy system, uh, the uh, solar and wind basically winning out, um, you're saying in stuff uh, I've seen elsewhere that basically this is going to permeate our entire society, the, the transport system first with vehicles, uh, electric vehicles and uh, public transport, then moving on to heating that with the what you just talked about, the heat pumps, and then where after that? Uh, um, well, hopefully electric cars will come rather quickly and electric cars will primarily be powered by renewable electricity because our electricity system is going green at quite a substantial speed. Um, when you've done that, you've already uh, taken care of the greenhouse gas emissions from um, about three quarters of the energy system. There are three major residual um, energy tasks, ships and planes, mm-hmm. and uh, high-temperature um, industrial processes. So ships and planes will probably require a fuel, which will probably be a drop in hydrocarbon, so kerosene and, uh, and mm-hmm. diesel, yep. uh, so that you don't have to change the engines in, in, sh- in ships and planes. And the task for creating Synthetic fuel is basically electrolysis of water. You need the, the task of obtaining the hydrogen to make this C12H26 molecule, for example. Um, the, the, the by far the largest energy requirement is getting the hydrogen, which comes from water. Mm. And there's another electrical requirement, which is uh, compression and extraction of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to provide the carbon. So. Virtually the entire energy task required for synthetic fuel is electric. So once again, photovoltaic and wind will provide that. And then the last and most difficult of the renew- um, the tasks for renewables is to replace high-temperature heat. And here we just have to grit our teeth and use electricity to make high-temperature heat. The temperature range is beyond that of viable heat pumps, yep. and we'll just use electric arc furnaces. But okay. it's a relatively small task and and if the if the fuel is free, um, then yes. So the the bogeyman that um, the fossil fuel industry has been hitting the renewables industry about for all these years, of course, is is storage, and they call it base load and so on. But we've got um, we've got good solutions for that, haven't we? Even without the new technology in batteries, there's pumped hydro, and there's the new technologies in batteries. Can you briefly speak to those? Well, there's uh, there's this old 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 solution going back 150 years, pumped hydro electricity storage. So you have two reservoirs, one about on top of a hill and then hopefully 500 metres lower down is another one and you put a pipe between the two with a pump and a turbine in the pipe and when you have spare electricity from wind or solar the water goes up the hill and when you don't have enough the water comes back down through a turbine. So there's nothing to invent. This is beautifully engineered uh, technology now. But and, the- and a good efficiency turnaround too. 
Yeah, an 80%, 85% round-trip efficiency. So you get back most of the energy that you put into your store. But the, the one difference from most current pumped hydro, of which there's about 155,000 megawatts installed around the world, the main difference is that future pumped hydro will mostly be off-river, away from rivers. So 99% of Australia is not near a river, and mm-hmm. um, but there are hundreds and thousands of sites where outside national parks where there's a high hill five or 700 metres above the surrounding country. Yep. You put a hectare-scale reservoir at the top, another one at the bottom, and so with a few hectares of reservoir, you can run 1,000 gigawatts for a few hours. So this mm. takes care of the day-night issue, and we are doing extensive modelling of electricity systems in Australia, which are showing that going to 100% photovoltaics and wind is really very straightforward using off-the-shelf photovoltaics and wind and pumped hydro. Nothing to invent. Yeah, that's, um, that's very exciting. And what and about the, the number of sites that you can identify, Andrew? Everywhere we look, we find sites. There's, you just got to go to you know, Google Earth, for example, and go hunting for hills outside national parks with a head or a height difference down a steep hill of the order of anywhere between 400 and 1,000 metres, and you find them everywhere in almost every settled place in Australia. And you said it's, a, it's about a hectare of storage, or roughly in that area? Well, one to ten hectares would be a typical uh, upper reservoir, yes. Uh, okay. So you wouldn't go larger than that, generally? No, there's no, there's no reason to. You, you actually want to distribute these because it, um, it means that you don't have to have massive power lines feeding into one small location. You just drop them where there's a wind farm or a solar farm or a high-voltage transmission line, um, wherever is convenient. Andrew, we've only got a minute and a half left, unfortunately. Can I just ask for your comments? You're so intimately involved in this industry of, of, and at this sense of time in Australia of where you see the future heading um, and in as much as you're willing to bring in political considerations, please do. Uh, I Current status quo is a gigawatt of PV and wind being installed every year. That's what we're doing now. That will yield 50% renewable electricity by 2030. And the main political argument is whether we can uh, double that to get to 80 or 90% by 2030. In other words, Which we, need we to can do. Green, our en- green our energy system very, very fast at very low cost. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, you've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and we're with Andrew Blakers. Where can, um, where can listeners find out more about the works you're doing, Andrew? Um, I recently published an item on the conversation about the photovoltaic and wind uh, revolution. So if you go to, if you just type in conversation Blakers, you'll find it very quickly. Uh, and there are many other articles that um, people can access in this general area. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we've hardly touched on, on all the stuff that Andrew's doing and, and um, we're honoured to have him on the show today, the contribution he's making in this area. Yes, thank you so much, Andrew. You have a wealth of knowledge in this area and I hope you continue to do your marvellous work. You're listening thank from you. 3CR in Melbourne, the Beyond Zero Emissions show, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au or directly from the radio station 3cr.org.au. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter with the tag at BZE Tech Show. Tune in again next week. Thank you to everyone listening to the podcast too. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.